So you, you made it here. I did make it here. I'm sure a lot of people had trouble with the airports yesterday, and so I'm happy I made it and the plane stayed on the runway, which is <laughs> what you want. Yeah, that, uh, it was too, I think Midway had a, had a, yeah. a, a plane that didn't, uh, that ran off the runway and also O'Hare did as well. And we were in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. They canceled the flights the rest of the day. Oh, man. And so we had three groups that drove vans in from Chattanooga to get here. Wow. Uh, so it, uh, it's been awesome. a long day. Now, <laughs> yeah. Two of them got here in about 10 hours, and then one got here in 13. 13 so hours. I won't embarrass the person in the, in the van that took 13 <laughs> hours to get here. Let's just say they're not on our data science, or uh, they're not logisticians. Uh, so, um, yeah. But anyways, well, really excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I love it, and I, I love Chicago, and so it's, it's awesome to be here. But yeah. yeah, this is awesome. You've written some, some of my favorite books. The one that is probably most commonly known is the book that became the movie The Social Network. I'd love to hear the story from your perspective on, I mean, uh, how that story came about. Sure. And, and what is the post-mortem on the Facebook story? Yeah, so um, it's really interesting. So I never set out to be a nonfiction writer. It was not my goal. I didn't intend to be a journalist. I wanted to be, really, I wanted to be a television writer. I loved TV as a kid, um, and my parents made a rule when we were little that we had to read two books a week before we were allowed to watch TV. So I became a speed reader at a young age, and that's essentially how I became a writer. What happened was I had first found the story about the MIT Blackjack team, which was the movie 21. And after that movie and book came out, I became the guy that everyone would send an email to if they did something crazy. Um, so I started getting weird emails, usually from prison, but people would tell me their story. <laughs> and eventually, uh, it was two in the morning, and I got an email, and it said, my best friend founded Facebook, and no one's ever heard of him. And so this was 2007. So at the time, Facebook was pretty big, but it wasn't anything like today. I had heard of a guy named Mark Zuckerberg, but I'd never heard of anybody else. Um, so I went out for a drink, and in walked Eduardo. So if you remember the movie The Social Network, you know, he looked like Eduardo. He didn't look like Spider-Man. You know, he was like the ugly version of, of <laughs> Spider-Man. But he was, uh, you know, very upset. He proceeded to, to get himself very, very drunk. And uh, he started the conversation by saying, Mark Zuckerberg fucked me. And as a writer, I said, well, tell me how. <laughs> and he proceeded to tell me this crazy story about these two best friends who met in an underground fraternity. Um, they weren't good at meeting girls. Uh, Mark went on a bad date and ended up hacking all the computers at Harvard and made a website where you could vote on who the hottest girl at Harvard was. He almost got kicked out of school, and then he caught the attention of the Winklevi twins, you know, who were the alpha males, the big uh, jocks, Olympic athletes, who were working on their own, who were working on their own website, and uh, they hired Mark to do their coding because they didn't really know how to make a website, and so Mark worked for them and then blew them off and then launched Facebook. Um, and Eduardo, you know, you, you saw the movie, or some of you did, ends up getting left behind. You know, Mark moves off to California, meets Sean Parker, who's the cool kid of Silicon Valley, um, and, uh, and basically Eduardo feels left behind, and he ends up flying out there, and he meets with a room full of lawyers, and he thinks they're his lawyers, and they're actually Facebook's lawyers, and he gets diluted to zero. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up suing Mark. The Winklevi twins, you know, who had gone off rowing in England, realized that Mark was building Facebook without them, and he, they sued Mark. And that's where I came into the story. So nobody was supposed to be talking to me. Eduardo had only reached out to me, it turns out, because he was attempting to get Facebook to settle with him. 
so I didn't find this out till later. Um, so there was no, they never really wanted a book to be written. But I thought this was a great idea, and I wrote a book proposal. And my book proposal leaked onto the internet, onto a site called gawker.com, if mm-hmm. you remember Gawker. Yeah. <laughs> and that day, all of this crazy stuff happened. Facebook settled with Eduardo for $5 billion. And on the top of the settlement agreement, it says, you may never speak to Ben Mesrick again. Because they were trying to stop this book from happening. So Eduardo broke off all contact with me. He sent me a legal restraining order. And he broke up with his girlfriend because she was my wife's best friend. And then he moved to Singapore, never to be heard from again. Did you get a piece of the five? No. So it's funny. I think about it. You know, he just disappeared. And for five billion dollars, most of the people here would never talk to me again either. I mean, it's a lot of money. I think my parents would have to think twice, right? Um, But um, no, he should have sent me at least a gift basket. You would think because that's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, the um, the same day Aaron Sorkin called and said, "I want to write this as my next movie." And the same day, David Fincher called and said, I want to direct this as my next movie, because they had seen it online. And this is a great moment in a writer's career, except for I hadn't actually written the book yet. So I basically locked myself in a hotel room, and I wrote the book over the next 12 weeks. And that became the movie. Now, was this the first uh, book that had been converted into a movie? So my book, 21. So Bringing Down the House was about the MIT Blackjack team. And it was a true story about a group of, of really smart math science kids who had won $6 million beating the game of blackjack. Um, So that was my first book that was turned into a real movie. Um, And that I had stumbled into a bar as well. All my stories start in a bar. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I was in a bar in Boston. I was a struggling writer. And there was a group of MIT kids. And they had tons of money. And the thing is, it was all in $100 bills. And uh, in Boston, you never see $100 bills. You know, I don't know what it's like where you guys live. but. You, there's not even a place in the cash register in most places for $100 bills in Boston. If you go to you know, Vegas, they come right out of the ATM machine. But in Boston, you never see them. And so I went up to these kids and I asked them why they had so much money. And the main character invited me to his apartment. And in his laundry was $250,000 in just stacks of hundreds. And immediately I thought, it's got to be a drug dealer, right? Who has that kind of cash? But it, he invited me to Vegas. And that night I flew to Vegas. Um, and then I joined the MIT Blackjack team for about six months, and that became my first nonfiction book, and that became my first movie. Did you actually play? Did you? Get I the did. I play? played for six months. I was horrible. I'm not a math guy, <laughs> so I was what's called a guerrilla player, where the guy would sit next to me and signal me what to do, um, and uh, I would strap on, you know, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. You would walk through the airports with all of this money. One time we had a duffel bag with nine hundred eighty thousand dollars in it, and we were down by the pool. And everyone wanted to go swimming. So I was like, well, where do we put the thing? And they go, oh, just put it on the table. It's not a million dollars. I mean, it was a weird time in my life. Um, and that was sort of when I transitioned from writing thrillers, which nobody was reading, to writing uh, true stories. And that became you know, Kevin Spacey and, and Lawrence Fishburne movie uh, 21. Is, you know, as a writer, you read the book, and I've read, I've read both of those, and I'll okay. also watch the movie. They're, they're different. How does that, yeah, it's very does different. that drive you crazy when, when directors take sort of... So I've been very fortunate. Um, both of the movies, I think, were good movies for different reasons. Um, when 21 came out, you know, Rounders was another great movie about cards, and that was a different way of going. 21 was aimed at 21-year-olds. It was aimed at, you know, you're on the plane to Vegas, and that's when you watch the movie 21. Which, by the way, I feel bad about because then you land and you think you can beat the game of blackjack. And the reality is it takes a lot of practice to beat the game of blackjack. But um, 
it was aimed at a wide audience. It was Robert Lucetic who had done Legally Blonde before that. As an author of books, you don't have a lot of control. You know, you sell the story um, to hopefully someone that you like and respect, but once you sell it, the writer becomes the lowest on the totem pole. You're basically at the level of the caterer in terms of a, a movie set. <laughs> Is they, they like you to be there, you can hang out at the bar, but they don't really want you to be involved. Um, TV is very different. I'm working in TV now. I'm, I'm working on the show Billions. Some of you watch Billions on Showtime. Um, I'm a writer-producer on that show. And in, in TV, writers are king. You get to actually control what's actually on the screen. But in, in movies, you have to hand it off to a director and hope that they do a good job. Now, The Social Network was an amazing movie. I mean, mm -hmm. David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin, you dream for a situation like that. On 21, I really enjoyed. It was not you know, like The Social Network, it was a very different movie, but it was aimed at a certain audience and did very well. I, I thought it was interesting how in the movie, most of the action takes place in a court, in a, in yeah. a deposition room, yeah. in, a law, in a law office, which was an interesting, would, you would think if anybody's ever done a deposition, it's not fun. Right. Uh, but they, the way that they directed it created some really compelling stories. It's compelling, and you know, it's really interesting because Mark Zuckerberg is not the most compelling individual in the world. If you watch those congressional hearings, it's like watching a robot. Um, but what Aaron Sorkin was able to do was to take what was really in the deposition. So a lot of that was straight from all these. So I managed to get a hold of all these legal documents, which one was not supposed to have. Um, I had a, my sources were the Winklevoss twins for that. They would meet me in a stairwell at Penn Station in New York and hand me these documents that nobody was supposed to be seeing. And that informed Sorkin. So a lot of those lines really are Mark Zuckerberg's lines. He really did say those things. But Jesse Eisenberg, the acting was so phenomenal. Um, and, and it was a really interesting way to do the story. So you went back and forth from the live action scenes to these people sitting in a courtroom. And yeah, you would think on paper that wouldn't work. But when I first read the screenplay Aaron Sorkin wrote, you know, it was a first draft. It was genius. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it just really does work. No, he, he, Mark, has been, came out and denied a lot of the facts in the movie. Oh, yeah. No, to be fair, in a lot of my books, the main characters then come out and deny the facts <laughs> in it. Um, so what I do is I, I interview everybody. I, I work as hard as I can to get the true story. And then I write it like a thriller. And sometimes the main characters are fans of what I do. And sometimes they are not. That was a situation where Mark did not want me to write this story, <clears throat> tried to stop it many, many times, because the story he wanted to tell did not involve the Winklevoss twins, did not involve Eduardo. It was just Mark Zuckerberg trying to save us all, making this incredible company, Facebook, which at the time was like a revolution. We all loved Facebook in 2009, right? In 2009, Facebook was changing everything for the better. Mm -hmm. You come to today, suddenly we realize Maybe it's not for the better. There are some issues with it that we're having, and Mark Zuckerberg may not be this revolutionary that we saw him as then. So at the time, yes, Mark was not in a fan of the, of the book or the movie. But they rented out theaters and Yeah, so what happened was, so the movie was happening. Uh, Aaron Sorkin just wrote an op-ed for the New York Times recently, which kind of explains some of what we did. But we wanted to call it Facebook. We wanted to use the real stuff. So we actually gave them a script before the movie came out. We invited them to watch it, and Sheryl Sandberg watched it and famously stood up in the middle of the screening and said, how could you do this to this poor kid? <laughs> I mean, he was 27 years old. But anyways, she runs out of the room. Um, but in the end, when the movie came out, I think Facebook realized that they needed to embrace it to some degree. Uh, so Zuckerberg went on uh, Saturday Night Live, mm, I, I he was on that. the cover of Time Magazine, and then he actually took busloads of employees to go watch the movie. Um, so in the end, it ended up 
working out for them very well. I mean, I, I think he was maybe smart because he sort of owned it as a property. Of course, and, it, and, and, you it, know what? and it elevated. It's their myth story, and, yeah. and every big company needs this myth of how they originated. I, I've become sort of, I try and find stories that are about the origination of something important that's changing the world, be it Facebook or Vegas. You know, the 21 story was really about Vegas. This was a time when Vegas was not hot. This was 2002. It was right before Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker. It was right before everyone went to Vegas, basically. And so you try and find a story that's going to tell a story that's going to last long. And that's what I think that Facebook story is. So it was smart for Mark to embrace it, warts and all, because when that company IPO'd, it was such a big story. I mean, I think Mark's, you know, ascension owes something to the social network. Without a doubt. It's interesting to sort of see how, and I remember it pretty well, because I was, uh, you, you know, you, you look to Mark Zuckerberg and what he built at Facebook, and I think every entrepreneur sort of dreams of the day where they can have something as uh, impactful and as, as big, perhaps, as that. But the story, has it's very flawed. I mean, what you see now, right. uh, what you saw in the, read in the book and saw in the movie is sort of playing out, but it's, it's not, it's not, flattering. It's right. very, very... I mean, what you mean is scary. Mark Zuckerberg is flawed, and that's what we're learning now. I think when we watch The Social Network now, um, you really see who Zuckerberg has become in that movie. This is a guy and who doesn't think the same way we all do, especially about business partners. He said in his own IMs that came out later, I like to live my life unethically but legally. <laughs> uh, he likes to walk that line, and so he truly has no problem you know, screwing over business partners, which he's done numerous times historically, if you look at the future, uh, uh, the past. If you look at how he feels about privacy and data, well, this all came from then. You know, he doesn't think the same way we do about our privacy. He doesn't have a problem with taking our data and using it to make our experience on Facebook better. In some ways, Just, he thinks he's helping society. He thinks he's making his... us a better world when he targets <clears throat> us uh, because it's giving us what we actually want, whether we know it or not. So he looks at it the way he looks at it is Facebook is a village. The whole world is going to live in this village. And so rather than us being two different people in two different cities, we live together on Facebook. But the only way that works is if we share everything. So he wants to get rid of all those walls. His initial idea for Facebook was that everything would be shared. There wouldn't be any walls. All of your data would be everyone's data. And that's a horrible thing when you think of it today. Um, but it's, it's how he thinks about the world. I think Mark was genuinely surprised when people got upset that, that all these things were happening. And he always believes that he's right. So he does something. We all get upset. He apologizes, but then keeps doing it. And it goes on and on and on like that. And the reality is his vision is actually borne out because none of us leave Facebook. The reality is every time Facebook gets in trouble, more people join Facebook. Facebook is not going anywhere. And every time you think this is the end, this is too much, it just gets bigger. What do, what do you think? I mean, you, you recently, your, your latest is about Bitcoin and yes. blockchain and this sort of crypto universe that exists. Facebook has come out with this Libra coin yeah. that has been, now it's under congressional hearings, All of the part, a lot of the partners have pulled out. Right. Did he go too far? So I, I, I wrote, my current book is called <clears throat> Bitcoin Billionaires, and it's the true story of the Winklevoss twins and their incredible second act. A lot of people don't know this, or some people do know this, but the twins got a settlement from Mark. It ended up being $65 million, but they refused to take it in cash because they still wanted to be a part of Facebook. So they took it in stock, after the IPO, they ended up with $500 million. Great amount of money. 
they decided to become a venture capitalist. They went out to Silicon Valley and nobody would take their money because everyone's end game in Silicon Valley is to sell your company to Facebook. And if you have the Winklevoss twins on your spreadsheets, you can't because he hates them. So instead, they went to Ibiza to party, as one does, and they ran into a guy on the beach who said, have you ever heard about Bitcoin? And they ended up buying in big. They bought 1% of all Bitcoin. They bought 200,000 coins at $7 a coin. Fast forward to today, they're now multi-billionaires because of their investment in Bitcoin. Zuckerberg now launches his own form of crypto, or is attempting to, called Libra. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that the twins launched their own company called Gemini around Bitcoin, mm. and Zuckerberg suddenly <clears throat> launches Libra. I think that's too much of a coincidence. I think they're all locked into this weird battle, the three of them. Libra has a lot of issues, and the main one is we don't trust Mark Zuckerberg. The idea behind Libra is it's going to be a crypto coin like Bitcoin, but it's going to be tied to the U.S. dollar, so one Libra will always be one dollar. And all of these Silicon Valley entrepreneurs would be involved in it. But everyone dropped out. And the reason they dropped out is because Facebook is somewhat toxic. Uh, the Congress, all of these different governments around the world are afraid of Facebook having control of our money. And so that's essentially what Libra would be, is them having control of our money. And so I think that makes people very nervous. Yeah, the Facebook story has gotten, I mean, since 2016 election, yeah. uh, all of social media, but certainly Facebook. What do you, I mean, what do, you, what do you take in that? I mean, where does this go from here? Well, I, I honestly believe Facebook's not going anywhere. I think it's just getting bigger and bigger. I think the political ads are an issue, and eventually they're going to have to do something about that. Twitter is getting rid of political ads. I think Facebook might end up going the same direction. The problem is Zuckerberg controls that company and refuses to make any changes. Um, so until they figure out a way to get around him, um, it won't really change the way we need it to change. But I do think, you know, it's not good that someone can target an ad at you um, and attempt to influence you based on things they see in your posts, right? Yeah. That's kind of ugly. Um, and so I think that's the sort of thing that has to change. Yeah, you got these uh, governments you know, using our democracy and free speech efforts. I mean, you know, and that's always happened. You know, always foreign governments attempt to get involved. I think it's not as pernicious maybe as it's made out to be. The idea that Russia is buying ads on Facebook doesn't terrify me that much. Um, but it's, it's not something that, that should be happening necessarily. But the question is, is it up to Facebook to vet all of these things? Are they supposed to be the people who decide what's true and what's not true? Or does some other organization have to do that? Now, you have a perspective of Russia. You wrote yes. a book uh, that is about the, olig the, oligarchs, the, Russian, right. the, the oligarchs of Russia. And you, you and I, when we talked last week, we're talking about how that was a pretty scary moment. Uh, yeah, so I wrote a book called Once Upon a Time in Russia. I wrote it about three years too early. <laughs> if it had come out today, it would have been a much bigger book. But it was a true story about this group of oligarchs, uh, these multi-multi-billionaires, who had essentially been handed all of Russia's resources. So these guys who were all black marketeers and gangsters had become the richest men in Russia. And they needed to install someone as president who they could control. Um, at the time, it was Boris Yeltsin. He was drunk and dying. So they installed a low-level KGB agent that they found in St. Petersburg because he had helped them set up a car dealership. And that man was Vladimir Putin. They found him, they brought him to Moscow, and they made him president of Russia. This was a guy they thought they could control. And instead, he invites all the oligarchs to Stalin's old house. This is a place where there's bullet holes in the walls because they used to line people up and shoot them. And he sat all the oligarchs down at a table, and he said, you've all made tons of money, you're all billionaires, 
You can keep your money as long as you stay out of my way. And so they had all misinterpreted Putin, as everyone always has. So the oligarchs that stayed out of Putin's way are oligarchs today, and they're worth billions of dollars. The oligarchs who stood up to Putin all died. Um, one fell out of a helicopter. Another one was found hanging in his bathroom from a scarf. One of them fell on the streets of Washington, D.C. and hit his head. Um, one at a time, they seem to have died. Um, so it's this incredible story about how everyone has misjudged Putin from the very beginning. Um, he was created by these oligarchs and then flipped it on its head, and he became essentially the biggest oligarch of all. And so, yeah, I wrote that book uh, right before the Trump everything happened. So I kind of missed the boat in terms of the timing of the book, but it really informed me about what was going on in Russia at the time and how a lot of these people fought. It was a very cutthroat uh, group of businessmen who essentially felt that everything is legal. Um, I have a lot of stories. One of them was, uh, there's a scene in the book, this is a true story, uh, Roman Abramovich, who is the main character, um, and his partner Boris Berezovsky, um, who eventually is found hanging from a scarf, the two of them wanted to set up an oil company in Siberia. But to do it, they needed the permission of a guy called a Red Director, who's an old world Soviet oil guy. So they go meet with him, and they say, we want you to hand us this oil company. He said, no, I'm not going to do it, it's my company. So they fly back to Moscow. That night, this guy goes swimming in the Irkutsk River and drowns. His bodyguard, who is the only witness, gets into a bar fight and dies. <laughs> so they proceed to tell me this story. I write this story down, and I'm like, wait a minute, I call up Roman Abramovich. And I'm like, you know, this makes it sound like you guys had him killed. And he goes, yes, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and I was like, well, do you have a problem with me putting this in the book? He's like, no, no problem. I was like, well, why isn't that a problem? <laughs> and he said, you have to think about Russia. Don't think about Russia in the 1990s like America in the 1990s. Think of Russia in the 1990s like America in the 1890s. In the 1890s, if a rival businessman refused you, you would shoot him. <laughs> and so in Russia, if a rival company you had an issue with, you would kill the CEO and you would then get their company. That's not the way it works anymore. I'm glad for but, that. <laughs> right, I mean, that, that's how it worked in the 90s in Russia. If you killed the rival company, you got their company. Um, and every company had a division of wet works. This is true. The oil company would have a team of assassins working for it. Uh, and, and the aluminum company had a team of assassins working for it. And that was just how business was done. And all the CEOs drove around in these armored cars all the time. And it's insane, right? But this is the story they told me. I never wanted to write this story because it was terrifying. Um, the way this story happened is there's a Hollywood director who used to always pitch me stories. And they were always horribly dangerous. He would call me up and say, there's these gun runners in Miami. I want you to go hang out with them. And I was like, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, how dangerous? And he's like, well, like an 8. I was like, well, I don't want an eight. I want like a one. Uh, I don't want to get killed. I have kids, right? So he's, he called me up and he's like, I've got a story for you. Uh, it's, it's really cool. And I was like, well, how dangerous? He said, I'm not going to tell you. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do it. He goes, I promise you, it's going to be awesome. Come to London. So I literally flew to London and I get there and there's all this security outside of this bar. And uh, it was like 100 agents, you know, people with, uh, you know, metal cars and everything. And I go in and these oligarchs were sitting at the table 
Um, and that's how this story happened. I didn't want to do it, but once they told me it, I was just enthralled by it. The idea that Putin came from nowhere, the, all of these things that had never really been told before. Um, and so that's how that became that book. How do you, I mean, you write this book about, I mean, anyone who's ever crossed or even journalists get assassinated in Yeah. Russia. I mean, did you ever worry about your personal <laughs> safety? So, first of all, I have limited integrity. So I was the author going in as their buddy. Um, I was not out to take down Putin or write this negative. Uh, there's another Russia book called Red Notice, which is a wonderful book, which really takes aim at Putin. And that author is now, you know, has <laughs> security all the time and he's very nervous. What I was wanted to do was do what they do at The Sopranos. So The Sopranos, the mob loves The Sopranos. It tells the story of the mafia, but through the eyes of the mafia. And so I was brought in to tell the story of the oligarchs through the eyes of the oligarchs. I think that's a cool way of telling the story. It's a story you haven't seen before. So I wouldn't write that book if they hadn't approved what I was going to write. Um, but yes, there were moments when I was absolutely terrified. I was at a meeting one time, um, and this very big Russian comes up behind me and just sticks something in my back pocket. And this is right after all the polonium poisoning. And I was like, oh, God, what, what just happened? He's like, don't look, don't look. I was like, oh, I can't look. I go back to my hotel room, and I pull it out, and it's a computer memory card, and it has on it 20,000 pages of depositions with Putin and all of these different oligarchs. And I'm like, I don't think I'm supposed to have this. I don't know what the legality of this is. So I called the lawyer in Boston, made sure he was waiting at the airport. So when I flew back, in case I got grabbed by the State Department, I would have a lawyer there. But I got it through, and that ended up informing a lot of the book. The oligarchs wanted me to have those depositions. Another time I'm walking on the street in New York with this oligarch who has killed a lot of people. And, uh, and there's these two NYU kids behind us, really loud and drunk. You know, it's a Saturday night in New York. And this guy's getting more and more annoyed, this Russian. And he turns to me and goes, this is very annoying. And I was like, well, it's New York. Everyone's having a good time. He's like, should I do something? I was like, no, no, I don't know what you're going to do, but don't do whatever you're thinking of doing. And then one other story. Uh, this is kind of a crazier story, but I was in New York, I was in London, and the director, who was kind of a crazy director, was supposed to meet me at 9 a.m. And at 10 a.m. he hasn't come down yet, 11 a.m. he hasn't come down yet, and we're supposed to meet with this oligarchs. He comes down at noon, and he's just bleeding all over. He's got blood coming out of his face, he's all like beat up. I'm like, what happened? And he said, well, I was in my hotel, and uh, I had just flown there from the set of a movie with his girlfriend, who then had gone through his phone and found pictures of his other girlfriend. And so rather than wake him, she had punched him as hard as she could in the face, taken his wallet and his passport and taken off. So he had come down, he's like, after this meeting, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go straight to the hospital because I don't know how hard she's hit me because I was unconscious. So we go to this meeting with this oligarch. I'm literally sitting with the director covered in blood. And the director turns to the oligarch and says, I, I feel like I just get hit in the head with a baseball bat. And the oligarch goes, no. You hit a man with a baseball bat, he doesn't get up. <laughs> so these are the kind of stories that I was learning as I wrote this book. It's not something I would ever write again. And, and uh, it was a little bit too terrifying. But in the end, I think it came out really, really great. Unfortunately, we were about to make the movie at Warner's when North Korea hacked Sony. You remember that big hack? And Warner's got cold feet <laughs> going after a story like this. And so the movie hasn't been made yet. But hopefully it'll end up uh, sooner or later. Someone will have the guts to make it. So this intersection of all this, I mean, now it's obviously the political, it's a huge backdrop of political, whether it's social media, yeah. Russia, 
Where is this all headed in your mind? Like, where does in, it end up? In terms of uh, what's going on in the, the country? geopolitical pressure. I mean, yeah, you know, it's a really weird time right now, as everybody knows. I mean, I joke about this all the time, but uh, I wrote a book about UFOs also, and I say, if a UFO landed on the White House lawn tomorrow, it would be like the fifth thing on the cover of the New York Times, because there's so much craziness going on. Um, the political situation is bizarre. I don't really write about politics necessarily. If I had an in on some story, I would write it, but right now there's so much being written about it from either side that it's just impossible to dive into that fray. Um, the Russia thing is very intriguing. I, I think that they're kind of like the Joker in the Joker movies, is that they're having a great time causing chaos and disorder, but I don't think they've got this strategy, this massive plan going on. I think they, the KGB way is to just cause mayhem as much as possible. That's what the KGB is taught to do when they go into these countries and want to deal with it. Cause enough mayhem and let the country destroy itself. And I think that is a Putin way of thinking. Is I'm not, no, he has no master plan to take over the world. I'm just going to sow a seed here and sow a seed here and see what happens. They also have a long view. It's just like China has a long view. Russia also has a long view. Um, this election doesn't matter to them. It's four elections down the road, essentially, is the way the KGB thinks about these things. So it's tricky. It's a very interesting time. I'm not one of these sort of naysayers or sky is falling kind of guys. I'm a very optimistic guy. I think everything is going to be fine. I always think that and I always have. But I do think we're in a very crazy period right now. And um, I'm not a political person. You know, I don't go one way or the other on anything. I just think um, everyone has to sort of take everything with a grain of salt. What, what do you think in terms of uh, venture? With You did the Facebook story. You've yes. talked a lot about uh, these bigger-than-life CEOs that have built these businesses. Right. Uh, but they're a flaw, and we've seen that just even in the recent venture cycle. What's yeah. your view on that? So we used to love these unicorn CEOs. We used to love these kids like Zuckerberg and these kind of crazy stories of these kids who bootstrap their way into multi-billion-dollar companies. Um, but we've shifted and now we're starting to be made nervous by the WeWork guy, by guys who, who have way too much power like Zuckerberg or people who, you know, they build these massive companies, but they're not always the right guy to run the company. And I think that's something that venture people have been saying for a long time is that, you know, it's not necessarily the guy who creates the company's dorm room who should be running it when it's got a thousand employees. Um, those are two very different jobs, right? And as I've researched these stories and, and written about them, I've really found these are very different personalities. The kid who starts the company is never the adult in the room. He's the one who needs an adult in the room. I think these companies work best when someone like that is paired with someone who has some authority over them. And that's a tricky question. I, I, I've interviewed VC people and I've interviewed entrepreneurs, and they have very different points of view of how that should work. Um, and, you know, the Sean Parkers of the world, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the WeWork guy, these guys are brilliant in what they create, but once it's actually a huge company with a lot of different issues to it, they end up riding it in the wrong direction a lot of the time, and I think that makes people nervous. I mean, Elon Musk could be described as... A... Elon Musk is a fascinating guy, who I would write about in a second if he wanted me to write about him, because I think he's, he's incredible, but he's also insane, right? <laughs> um, so what he's done is amazing. I mean, what he's trying to do... I think is really, really cool. He wants to go to Mars, you know? Let's let him go to Mars. He wants to build electric cars and tunnels under LA, and he's like something out of The Simpsons, right? But at the uh -huh. same time, you have to think about the reality of the situation, and sometimes he pushes things the wrong way. I've always said that the world will be saved by a billionaire married to a scientist. I think that these are the, this is what we need. We need people with unlimited resources paired with people with scientific vision to make the world better. 
but at the same time, someone has to be the adult in the room and has to sort of guide it in the right direction. There always needs to be a Winklevi, mm -hmm. someone in a suit and tie who shows up and wants to keep it all on the up and up. You can't just let the creative do everything. And as a creative, I understand that. I mean, I really feel like if you let the creatives do everything, we're all going to end up in a bar. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous situation. What do you take with Bill Gates going from my, Microsoft and building this massive company? There's a lot of similarities between Zuckerberg yes. and Bill Gates. Right. Um, but he's, and you talked about him marrying a scientist. In right. many ways, his wife is, you know, she has been driving a lot of his philanthropic efforts. I mean, what do you, is that sort of what you view as someone to say? I mean, I think that's a great situation. A lot of people right now are very anti-billionaires. There's a whole very big anti-billionaire movement going on. I'm actually pro-billionaire. I'm probably the only person who's pro-billionaire in that I think that these resources is what we need, you know, to fix the problems we have. Cancer is not going to be cured by the U.S. government. It's going to be cured by a bunch of billionaires throwing money at cancer. Um, the reason they throw money at cancer is because their wife or they mm fall into a reason to do it. They see something in the science that's important. Uh, life, extending life. All of these billionaires are trying to live forever. Mm -hmm. If you were a billionaire, you'd want to live forever too, right? So they're all throwing tons of money at these labs to come up with these ways of, of living longer. And it's actually working. I spent time at the Harvard lab. I wrote a book called Woolly, which is about a scientist who's trying to bring back the woolly mammoth, a guy named George Church. Um, it's a brilliant, brilliant scientist who's really going to change the world. His lab is also working on reverse aging. They've got mice now that live three times the length of average mice. They've actually figured out ways to keep dogs going for 25, 30 years. Um, this is really going to change our world. And they're funded entirely by these crazy billionaires because those are the people who want to live forever and have the money to try and do it. So I do think that there's some good that comes out of this. Uh, Bill Gates giving away his money. I mean, the question is, would you rather Bill Gates gave away his money or the government gave away Bill Gates' money? Um, and that's, a, that's an interesting question. I'm not the one who could give you the answer to that, but it's two very different ways of giving. I like the idea that we would all get a vote on how that money is used, but at the same time, a lot of times our vote gets thrown away and then the money gets used for things that we didn't choose. So it's a hard question to answer. It's not as simple as just take their money away and let's give it away. Uh, I do love the idea of billionaires giving away their money towards the end, and a lot of them do do that. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them do, and I think Bill Gates is a model for that. But yes, I do think a scientist and a billionaire is what's going to solve global warming, right? A scientist and a billionaire is going to eventually cure cancer. A scientist and a billionaire is going to make us live to 150 years. So you, you mentioned that you are now working on the show of Billions, yes. which is another flawed hero. Very flawed, yes. Although people love him, so maybe <laughs> we love the flawed hero. I mean, Billions is about a, a hedge fund guy who, uh, who is venal. He's, it's all the bad things about being a billionaire wrapped into a character, and yet he's also likable in that he built himself up and he's, you know, um, headstrong or whatever, and he's battling with the Attorney General of New York. So it's very based on real stories. Um, it's a cool show on Showtime, yeah. This conference is dedicated to uh, innovation, technology, and transportation. Yes. And, and as an industry, we're only going through that cycle recently. And we don't have these bigger-than-life personalities yet, but they're starting to emerge. I'm wondering, what do you caution entrepreneurs, founders in the room, uh, based on the interviews you've done, in yeah. terms of how they handle themselves, present themselves, think of themselves, and how they interact with, with people that perhaps they're working with? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I would say the characteristics of the people that I've written about 
who have become incredible successes, they're all similar in that they take enormous risks, right? And everyone you know, knows risk. Risk is an important part of becoming successful. Um, uh, but at the same time, there's, they need to have some level of an ethical component to them because otherwise they end up in a place where suddenly we all hate them and we're trying to bring them down. And so essentially you have to be willing to take the risks um, and you have to be willing to sort of follow the rules to some degree once you get there. Um, I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question. We're in a moment in time where everything's moving so quickly um, uh, that, that you have to be able to see over that little horizon um, but not think too far out because it changes so much before you get there. Um, so these people really can see right over that next horizon to that next thing. Um, but usually they're not looking 20 years into the future, they're looking one to two years into the future. Yeah, it's all about right it's, now. It's, it's right now and it's very quick. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think also people have to be very careful. Uh, we've learned from Zuckerberg, um, what you say matters. Um, and, you know, his IMs coming out that are all horrible, the way he's treated people around him all coming out now in emails and things like that. Um, it's, everything is written in pen, right? Nothing is written in pencil. Anything you say or do is there forever, whether you like it or not. And we saw, I mean, with Uber, it, what started the beginning of the end was a, a medium post by right. a, a, a Honestly, I do not understand why anybody who is an entrepreneur or CEO ever tweets or posts. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think, right, but I think it's a very scary prospect because one mistake or one misinterpreted sentence it can spell disaster. And we've seen this again and again and again. So it's a tricky thing to do. There are people who do it very well. But you look at Elon Musk and, you know, he galvanized... He he a was big manic, audience. What? I mean, he appeared to be manic at the time. Yes, was... whatever the reason is. Yeah. But if he didn't have Twitter, he would be beloved by everyone still. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, and you see this again and again and again. Um, so it's a tricky thing. I definitely think people should be very careful. The world is pen, not pencil. And so anything you say... 10 years ago is going to come up again. What do you take of these companies that are under assault or not under assault? Well, oftentimes their own doing, but what do right. you take when they're sort of under attack? And we saw WeWork a few weeks ago. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, uh, some of these soft bank businesses have yeah. sort of struggled. I mean, where, what is your view on that? I mean, what do you do as a, as a founder, as a company? How do you manage the, the media cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very tricky. I think there's different ways to go about it. What Zuckerberg does is just does what he wants to do and says sorry and then keeps doing what he wants to do. And he waits for us all to come out behind him. I think it's funny, all these people who talk about, I'm going to get rid of Facebook, I'm just going to be on Instagram. Well, that's Zuckerberg too. I mean, it's the same company. <laughs> um, and so I think he believes that he, we will all come around to his point of view sooner or later. So that's one way to handle that situation. And he has been proven right over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, I think another, I, I think it's, it's a hard question to understand is how do you manage your, how everyone perceives you um, and what you're really trying to do. Especially when you're disrupting these businesses. Yes. and. It's a lot of reason that people hate the disruptor, whether you're taxi right. authorities or right. transportation. In the case of WeWork, you know, just the REITs and everybody, it's sort of, right. there's a little bit of jealousy in that, but there's right. also a, a little bit of chagrin in seeing these companies sort of falter. Right. right. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think to some extent you have to accept that you're going to have enemies and people are going to come after you. And, and uh, your goal is to be perceived the way you perceive yourself. 
And so whatever you're trying to present to the world has to be true to what your vision is. I think mistakes people make is trying to trick the public or trying to do something um, without clearly lining out what they're trying to do. Um, but yeah, you have to accept the half the people are going to hate you. <laughs> I think when you disrupt something, everyone who was in the old way is going to be oh, your enemy from then on. And that's, that's a tricky thing. Um, and I think we've actually entered an interesting moment where, where the idea of, of how a company is successful has changed. What makes a company successful? It's no longer profits, right? Because a lot of the most successful e-companies in the world have never made a profit and never will. Um, so what makes a company successful now has a lot to do with the public view of that company. Um, so that becomes very important. Uber is entirely a company that works because we believe in it, right? And the minute we don't like it and believe in it, it will probably fail. And that's the same with Facebook, you would think, um, although Facebook does make money. But Amazon, for instance, we love Amazon. I've always said, if Facebook hadn't launched Libra, but Amazon had launched Libra, it would be the dominant form of currency today. You know, it's interesting, in this audience, there is a very uh, polarizing view of Amazon. Uh -huh. because. Amazon is getting deep into transportation, logistics, and right. making a lot of investments. I've seen the videos, there. yes. <laughs> and, but as a consumer, you love Amazon. Right. It's a, it works, it's, it's Isn't great, it amazing? Do you remember the first time you put your credit card into Amazon? And it was this terrifying thing. You're like, I'm going to be broke tomorrow. Someone's <laughs> going to steal all my money. But now, we do it 10 times a day, and you don't even think twice about it. They already have their hands in all of our wallets, right? We don't think twice about it. But the idea of Facebook doing it we don't like, yeah, right. right? And so it is interesting. We have all fallen under Amazon's sway, whether we like it or not. Amazon is the company which we use all day long to buy things. So there is that. But I, I, I agree. It's interesting. Jeff Bezos is, a, is an interesting character study. He's someone I would write about in a second as well, uh, in that I think he's absolutely a genius, and he's created something immense and incredible. I don't know what the end game is. And that's something we're all wondering is, you know, as they, in the book industry, obviously, at, in the beginning, we all hated Amazon. We were terrified of it. It was going to destroy the book industry. Now it is the book industry. Um, so it's an intriguing question where that goes. Yeah, the whole HQT uh, thing really created a political cycle. Is, you know, he bought the Washington Post, which created this whole other political right. element to it. Yeah. So it's interesting. Well, Ben, really appreciate you coming here. I think it's been a fantastic. I know it was not easy to get here, but let's no, give Ben uh, a, get a hand. So. Thank you all.